Yeah, it's a Canuck Central Wednesday. That's an overrated, underrated Wednesday. It's coming up a little bit later on. Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. We are a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Kevin Woodley coming up on the show today. Jonathan Bates, ex-scout with the Vancouver Canucks, and we'll also have... A little look in at uh, Leafs Nation and the party that was over the last 24 hours. <laughs> the great despair that one eventually became a big celebration. Yeah, that was uh, quite the hockey game. Man, last night was an incredible night of hockey. It's fun. Good playoff hockey. Yeah. I mean, what do you want? You want swings. Uh, you want exciting goals. You want games to go down to the wire, get to overtime. Not go on too long. Maybe too short. I kind of wish the overtime between Dallas, I mean, uh, <laughs> LA and Edmonton would have lasted longer than, you know, 30 se- what was it, 16 seconds, 20 yep. seconds, whatever it was, a minute. You and Duncan Keith. Woo! <laughs> Man, by the way, I know uh, Connor McDavid took a lot of heat on that, on that play too, for his back check on it. Yeah. It was a one on one with Duncan Keith at that point. Yeah. I mean, Keith should, should be able to handle Kempe. I mean, it wasn't like, I know people said, oh, well, Keith got caught flat-footed. I mean, he sees Kempe coming at him. <laughs> like, why Why are you flat-footed? Uh, no idea what, what happened with Keith there. He definitely cheated a little too far inside yeah. and then could not recover. Like, you got to understand who you're going up against, too, because Kempe is about as fast a forward as there is in that game last night on the LA Kings. Duncan Keith was not up to task, but uh, that's kind of been the case for most of his season in Edmonton for the three-time cup champ. I uh, I want to dive into that a little bit more, um, but there's a couple of other things first before we get to the Stanley Cup playoffs and some of that breakdown and how it ties in with the Canucks, especially the LA Kings, who Jim Rutherford specifically mentioned as a team that plays with great structure, and we definitely saw that last night, at least for the first half of that game. That word, by the way, my overrated, underrated, structure. <laughs> That's, that might be coming up from Structure. Me. Is it structurally sound? Um, so we'll get to that. But Canucks have 15th overall. Heard Sammy Kaz uh, mm-hmm. talking on um, on the People's Show. A lot of people doing their prospect talks we had Chris Peters on yesterday, so you can check that out on the podcast, of course. But what do the Canucks want to do with 15th overall? We know Patrick Alvin said best player available mm-hmm. no matter what. What do you think the Canucks are looking at 15th overall, Sat? Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how this all unfolds. And I will preface this by saying... Um, I may have more inside information as time goes on that yes. may be even more clear and perhaps a bit more accurate closer to the draft. It's a very early view at yes. how the Canucks may look at it. Very early view of this. And this is what I believe is, is kind of going on to some extent. Now, I don't know the Canucks list. I can't sit here and pretend I know who they have number one and what, what the top 16 is or what the tier looks like. What I find interesting, though, is some of the names that are coming up now. And we talked, uh, we spoke yesterday, Chris Peters, about a yep. few prospects yesterday. Denton Matichuk, who's the left side defenseman who plays for Moose Jaw, uh, and Pavel Mintikov, who is a Russian defenseman as well. And Mintikov, I know Dolly Wall today mentioned, 
you know, he's somebody the Canucks would be interested in. I mentioned yesterday I could totally see the Canucks being interested in a guy like Mintikov. And I think for sure, if he's there at 15, that would he would make the Canucks think. I probably think they have him ahead of a guy like Mathichuk. But Mathichuk, I don't think is too dissimilar from a guy like Minku, um, uh, Mintikov. So if you like him, then Mathichuk is probably not too far off from your list either. So I think those are a couple, couple guys for sure to keep an eye on. I don't know if they're super high on guys like Frank Nazar and Connor Geeky. Like, I think there might be people in the organization that like Nazar. I think it might be a bit, bit split on him. Mm-hmm. But on Connor Geeky, I don't know. I, I, there are a lot of things to like about him, but I, I do believe there might be a sense that his pace isn't good enough. And I think there might be a sense that his consistency isn't there. And I think those are fair questions about Connor Geeky. So, as much as he's a player who. We look at and say, okay, he's a center, big, big guy, a lot of ability, and people have ranked him anywhere in the top 10 the last little while. If he's there at 15, I don't know. Yeah, there could be a lot of things at at 15 that the Canucks think about. There's so much about this first round that will be fascinating because, you know, when when we talked to Chris Peters, when you heard Patrick Alvin speak yesterday, there's kind of a group between four and 16 that are all similar. Mm-hmm. Um, at least from a talent level, they they assess right now. And when that's the case, when a lot of people feel that way, it's going to be real tough to mock draft this year. <laughs> no, 100%. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and, 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 you know, I, I think that's, that's for sure. And I think some of the traits are becoming a bit evident. Because I, I think Mark, Marco Casper is a guy that has that's been on my radar for a while that we've yeah. talked about. I think there are people in the Canucks organization that do like him as well. He could very well be there at number 15. And what does he have? A lot of pace. Yeah. Very fast. And you, so when you have that in your game and you start saying, okay, he might be a guy they have, you know, some some liking towards. And then a guy like Connor Geeky, because of the lack of pace, maybe not as much. It kind of tells you that speed and skating is for sure going to be I a priority this, here. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And the biggest thing, though, is, as we always talk about, Speed is one thing. How do you process the game? Do you process yeah. it quickly? Can you also play fast while playing with the speed that you possess? Absolutely. And that's kind of why, even though a guy like Tristan Luneau, who is six foot two, right side defenseman, and he might he might be available in that range where the Canucks are picking at 15, I'm not sure they'd love him because some of the things you talk about processing and making that decision. And just because he's a righty and just because he's big and has some physicality, I'm not quite sure. It'll be fascinating, though, like if a guy like Kevin Korchinski, Owen Pickering, Denton Matichuk, all four, all four of those guys are available, which one of those guys they take? Yeah. Because each one is a little bit different, whereas I think a guy like Korchinski, he's very well-rounded already as a player. He has a little bit of size to him, but doesn't have the skating and offensive ability a guy like Matichuk has. And an Owen Pickering is a bit of a projection. Six foot four, but if he grows into his body yeah. and can do all those other things that he, he's able to do. So I'm not sure how they view those guys, but if they're picking one of those defensemen, it's going to tell us a lot about how they view where the league is trending. It really feels like where the Canucks are drafting that uh, a left side defenseman uh, may very well drop to them, mm-hmm. right? And that's where just take the best player available sort of mantra has to be of utmost importance because that necessarily what the organization needs given they have OEL and Quinn Hughes and Jack Rathbone? Maybe not, but if that's the best player available, then you just take him. And we're going to go into this with with Jonathan Bates. Like these types of questions 
of, you know, how does a team handle best player available? Does it come down to if you have players similarly ranked or similarly evaluated, do you then say, well, let's take the player that helps our organization more, right? How do you balance those questions? Like, we have a similar grade on these two players, but we might benefit more from taking the left winger right now than we would the left shot defenseman. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you balance those things? Because it's not always as black and white as best player available or just take the top guy on your whiteboard. No, absolutely. And when when it comes to those those kind of ties, and we'll talk to Jonathan Bates about this as well. Yeah. Like, what do you do when there is a tie? And what do you do with, you know, when a guy's outside of your tier or in your tier? And all those sort of, you know, nitty gritty things when it comes to the draft, which which are kind of fun. Yeah. I, I, at least I think that stuff's fascinating. So we'll talk to him about that. Um, but... It does also kind of depend largely on who's available this year at 15. And every team, to your the point you made a bit earlier, which I think is is a really salient one, there is a big swath of players in the same range. Now, some people have that from like 5 to 16. Some have that from, say, 5 to 12. It depends on how you kind of view it. That in and of itself kind of tells yeah. you, you know, how much variance there is going to be. And every single team is going to have a bit of a different list, not only in tiers, but also where they rank players. So... Is, is this a type of draft where the Canucks, in theory, have a player who's number, say, six or seven on their list that finds himself there at number 15? Yeah. It's possible. Like, a guy that people bring up, Minor Matt, brings up uh, Lamb- Brad Lambert. If he's there at 15, would he be a good selection for Vancouver? He's a really interesting one because there has been um, the people I've talked to, they love his speed. They love a lot of the things that he's done. He just wasn't as productive last year. But considering he was playing with lot, with adults a lot of the time and everything else, it's one of those things where you can kind of explain away some of the struggles at times. Right. But he's a player that I could see, if he's there at 15, why would they not consider him? Because they may view him as a player that's clearly a top 10 pick. If he's there at number five, 15, that might just be too good a value to pass up. There's also the question of the Russians and mm-hmm. what happens with those players. There could be some real real talent dropping in this draft uh, among the Russian contingent as well. Uh, so we'll dive into that a little bit more. Jonathan Bates is going to join us. Uh, Canucks are going through their amateur and pro scouting meetings. Uh, we will uh, try and take you behind the curtain of what happens when teams are going through their amateur and pro scouting meetings and how they handle the draft board as well in the moment. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. This is Canuck Central. So that first period for the LA Kings was absolutely suffocating, Sat. What did Edmonton have, like five shots on net? Yeah, something like that. They didn't play very well, obviously. But it's not just about the one team not playing well. It's about what the opposing team is doing to them to also cause that. And... I couldn't stop thinking about what Jim Rutherford said on this very show last week and specifically referencing the L.A. Kings and the type of structure that they play with. Here is uh, Jim Rutherford from last week on Canucks Central on how he'd like the Canucks to play with more structure and specifically references the L.A. Kings. You know, L.A. went through a rebuild. They've done a really good job. Now they've got their team to a point where they're a playoff team. And if you watch them play, they've they've got great structure. They know where every guy on the ice is. They know where they're going to move the puck next. Guys know where they're supposed to be. 
and it really makes it easier for the players to play. And believe it or not, the players actually have more scoring chances. They actually get more points. They, they're not playing in a game where they're cheating to get those scoring chances. The, the scoring chances, if you're playing the right way, you actually end up getting more. There is uh, Jim Rutherford. And this is the scoring chances, you actually end up getting more. Like, there isn't anybody who watched that game last night and couldn't tell that L.A. was overall the better team. They were creating by far more. And the reason why you create more when you're uh, staying true to your structure is because you let, make less mistakes and your opponent's probably going to make more mistakes. Yeah. And when mistakes happen, you get chances, especially in transition, and you get a lot of transition chances. How many times do you see the Kings hit the Oilers in transition because mm-hmm. they cause a turnover, they, they play patient hockey, good puck, puck support, they win a battle. Next thing you know, guys will be available for an outlet, puck is out. I mean, yeah. you know, w- watch the Kings next game, and maybe it's a game where Edmonton just goes ham and they, they can't do anything, but when you watch it in Kings, see how often there's an outlet available for one of the defen- defensemen. There's always somebody available for them to receive a pass. Especially on the breakouts. Yes. Yeah. And that's what Jim Rutherford was specifically talking about, is those breakouts, always having support, always having an outlet pass, knowing where each other's going to be. And the big thing about the transition chances that you mentioned, especially, like, go back and watch the Kempe goal again. You know, they have Edmonton hemmed in to their own end. Mm -hmm. And it gets to a point where Keith is just like, I got to get rid of this puck. He does. Stetcher pinches up in the, into the neutral zone to get it back towards the blue line and get it to Kempe, and the Oilers can't react quick enough. Yeah. No player on the ice, McDavid, Keith, anybody, reacted quickly enough to Stetcher jumping up to play that clear quickly and get Kempe back in on the rush, and that's how the goal is created. They did that on Stetcher's goal, similarly. There's a loose puck in the neutral zone, they kind of overload the right side of the neutral zone to get the zone entry, mm-hmm. and then they get the shot on net. Grundstrom goes. He almost gets a rebound chance. It comes back around to Stetcher after Edler makes the pinch, and they score the goal that way. I mean, it, it, it's just it's cohesive. It right? is. Well, it's very cohesive, but they also have a lot of good fours that are really good two-way players. And we know we spend so much time talking about Kopitar and uh, Dano for good reason. They're incredible. What about modern Bla- day Guy Carbono? That <laughs> That's your boy. Uh, but what about a guy like Blake Lazat? I have follow Grundstrom. How well he's been playing as a two way player. Go through their lineup. Trevor I mean, Moore. Trevor Moore. A bunch of their guys are really good two way players. Now, maybe not as prolific offensively. A lot of those players, but what they're really good at is. Providing speed, straight ahead play, and understanding where to be in playing within structure. And they're always available for a breakout pass or coming back to help a defenseman who's under duress to have an easy outlet. And it's not just all kind of be providing a, an outlet on your side of the red line. It can very much be on the other team's blue line. And that's oftentimes where a player gets hit on the breakout too. So, you know, to the point that Rutherford was making, when you're playing within structure, it's not just about, you know, being available for the short pass, the easy outlet, and, you know, being super conservative. If you play within structure and you stay true to it, sometimes that seam pass opens up. Sometimes, you know, that that stretch pass opens up because 
that's what's going to happen if you stay true to where you need to be at all times. And that's oftentimes how the Kings hit the Oilers, right? It's not just the short little pass to relieve pressure. It's that stretch pass that opens up. Yeah. Well, the Oilers don't play with structure. Not at all. And then when they're not having success, they start to cheat. (laughs) Does it sound familiar? They start to cheat. And especially lower through the lineup, they really get burned. Now, McDavid and Dreisaitl were incredible. Mm-hmm. Put the team on their back, almost won the game for the Oilers last night. But it's been the same consistent story with the Edmonton Oilers for such a long time now. They, and it's not just they're not getting good enough goaltending. I know the clip from McDavid last night. We score four goals. That should be enough. Yeah, it should. But one, your team isn't strong enough when you aren't on the ice 97. And two, you're not getting good enough goaltending. Mm-hmm. Like you you really compound your errors when you're not getting great goaltending, of course, and they become more magnified. All of those things apply. But the Oilers are a team that doesn't play with structure and they're just like, it's it's essentially our stars are going to win us games. Yeah, and and their blue line for as much as they have a bunch of guys who are names, <laughs> it's not good. Yeah, Evan Bouchard really struggles. Yep, defensively. Like there are times when he's set up in the offensive zone and he's he's talented and on the power play and stuff, super talented, but he struggles, especially in transition too. Tyson Berry's a disaster in his own zone. Yep, Cody CC well. It's Cody CC. although Cody he's Cece, been okay. Interesting um, interesting thing with Cody CC though, when he went to Jim Rutherford's Pittsburgh Penguins, you know, he kind of found his game, played within their structure, and was able to have some success to the point where the Edmonton Oilers went and gave him a four-year contract, and now you're seeing more of the warts with him again. Well, you know, and that's the thing, where if you put a guy in a position where all you're asking him to do is something he's capable of doing, yeah, and can do it repeatedly... It can be a lot easier. However, he goes into Edmonton's team. They're paying him a lot more money. Expectations are different. Structure is different. He has to do more, and he's not capable of doing more. It all comes down to what you're asking a player to do and how capable he is of doing something. And the reason why a coach like Rutherford keeps bringing up structure, and it goes back to what you mentioned about Pittsburgh, what do we always say about Pittsburgh? Hey, Malkin's in, Crosby's in, they're out, doesn't matter, they play the same way. Why? Because they play the same exact structure game in and game out. And yeah. even though if those guys aren't there, yeah, they may not be as as successful, they may not be as good or nor as dangerous, but they play the exact same way. Everybody knows exactly what they have to do. And we have that consistency, you're still going to get decent results. And that's why that team, no matter what happens, keeps keeping its head above water. That team is a great example. And, hey, it's Rutherford's ex-team. He put the coach in place, all of that. But, yeah, when Crosby's on the ice, Crosby, Gensel, Rust, like that's as good a top line as there is in the league, especially when, when Crosby's playing the way that he is right now. But outside of that, they don't have a ton of brand names. They've got a lot of guys that fit into the structure, play the way the team needs to play to win, and they have a lot of success with that. And you look at Pittsburgh's numbers, defensively they are really good and consistently outchancing their opponents as well. That's why, you know, you look at that the contrast to that series, even with Louis Domingue and Nett, it's tilted so much, the ice, because the Rangers play with much less structure that Pittsburgh's winning all those battles. Mm-hmm. And I think when you bring it up with Vancouver and bringing it back to Vancouver because people are mad on the text inbox, and we're talking too much about the Oilers. 
It all was rooted in a thought about the Vancouver Canucks and still some uncertainty uh, to some level with Bruce Boudreaux, as we know. But the fact remains, team had a ton of success towards the end of the season, Sad. How much of that was based on a strong structure, a way of playing, an identity of how the Canucks played not just that, but also, is it a sustainable way of playing? So, I mean, the word structure in in and of itself doesn't mean every structure is the same. It just means what you're trying to do and the, the way you're trying to play and how you conform to that. What the Canucks did or the identity that they were able to forge was really twofold under Boudreaux. One was the aggressive forecheck and playing down low, below the hash marks a lot more where you generate your offense from and with a lot of players that succeed in that Miller Pearson Bo is really good down low right yeah and the quick ups which was get the puck up ice now sometimes that is a controlled exit sometimes that is you skating it out or passing it to somebody or sometimes it's just flipping the puck out and hoping 50 50 somebody wins a puck battle yeah that was how they approach the breakout it wasn't hey this is your outlet that's your outlet it was as soon as you get it get it out that's all we care about yeah. let's not worry too much about what you do with the puck unless it's Quinn Hughes get it and get it off your stick but it wasn't really the this the structured style in the sense of your breakout has two or three passing options and it has to be a controlled exit that you're going for you're not going for a 50 50 puck battle you're not going for you know a, a flip up and you know see who jumps onto the puck you're, you're going for a controlled exit 95% of the time or 90% of the time. That's not how the Canucks played. Now, why is that? was that the case? Was it, number one, the personnel, and by that we mean the defensemen and the forwards that are capable of doing that successfully, or was it a reluctance by the coach to go there? Well, two things. Did Boudreaux have enough time, practice time that is, yes. to implement those types of things. Now he did get more practice time than a normal coach would because they had all those weird breaks in January and February with the COVID and and different things that were ongoing. Remember like when Bruce Boudreaux first came in, they had like a week off just to practice. Yeah. So there was a, a mini training camp there where Bruce did get some time to implement the things that he wanted to, but did there come a point where he just said, we're not built to play that way, so this is what we're going to have to do, right? Mm-hmm. And we do have a text saying, you know, Travis Green tried to play with this great structure, but the, the Canucks, did they have the personnel to do so? I mean, I always said Travis Green's greatest strength was the fact that he got people to buy in. Yeah. And when he, once he lost that, he wasn't, you know, the, the X's and O's type of guy that's going to overcome those sort of things with this great strategy and he's not that he's bad at it but to me he wasn't really a great structure coach in that sense I mean I think we we forget the year before last people were begging for the Canucks to play with structure remember last year during the pandemic year when they were when they couldn't play defense they were just trying to hit teams on the breakout all the time and be super offensive and aggressive and they were giving up two on ones three on ones odd man chances galore they didn't know how to defend they weren't playing with structure they were trying to be overly aggressive at times I don't think they've had a coach that really preaches that type of structure since Elian Vigneault. Wow. Because towards, towards, you know, he, he was, he also has that in him, but that year was such a disaster that it's hard to really gauge any of it. 
Willie D, <laughs> and there wasn't really much structure in the sense. If anything, he wanted them to be offensive, and it really blew up in their face. The uh, these are all great examples of, you know, yes, it comes down to a coach. Yes, some of it is personnel. Jim Rutherford specifically said it's on coaching. Yeah, right. <laughs> Coaches can implement it. 100%. But, but you know, to Rob's point who texts in, you know, if Bruce would have tried to implement structure, he would have lost 10 more games than they did. Yeah. And they have no sniff at closing it or getting close in the postseason. And that's the point here. And that's, I think, why Rutherford and Alvin said, hey, we want, we want to see what he does with training camp. Because that's yeah. when you implement these things. That's when you're able to put that stuff into play. So if you have questions about, okay, does can he coach that out of our guys? You haven't seen that because he wasn't afforded the real opportunity to do so. Now, if you're not sure about it, I can understand your hesitancy in not giving him a contract extension, but he was able to put that in place through training camp, and next year the team plays with more structure under Boudreaux, yeah. then it becomes obvious he's the guy who's going to stay here. It's a chemistry thing, too. And the team was so down in the dumps. We talk about this all the time. If you're not trusting each other, everything falls apart, mm-hmm. right? This team was in such a bad state, it's hard to imagine that they would have all gotten on the same page right away. Could you live with the results if you weren't on the same page? All these guys, they know every breakout there is to know. Like, they're professional hockey players. They've been doing this every day of their life for the last, you know, since they were 10 years old or younger, right? So they they know uh, a lot of the... Like there's only so many different wrinkles an NHL coach can put into a breakout or some of their systems play, but it's about getting everybody on the same page so that you are supporting the puck, that you are supporting each other. You're in the right spot, ready for the pass when it comes. All of those things are huge, and the Canucks uh, still need to find that. But you saw it with the LA Kings last night against the Edmonton Oilers. We'll keep an eye on uh, what's happening in the playoff games as well. No score in Pittsburgh and New York for the moment. But coming up next, Kevin Woodley is going to join us. His take on how the season ended for Michael DiPietro and Arthur Silovs, plus some of what's happening in the Stanley Cup playoffs. That's next on Canuck Central. Canuck Central is a presentation of your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Um, you know, one great thing about today, Sat, it is McHappy Day. And on McHappy Day, doing good is delicious. All day long, buying any food or beverage item will help sick children and their families stay together at Ronald McDonald House across Canada. So get out, get your Big Mac, get your Royale with cheese, maybe some little nuggies. I don't know. I'm a big fan of the nuggies. You do like the nuggies. But we may have to do a public service then. (laughs) Uh, Maybe add a junior chicken sandwich to your Big Mac meal. I don't know. Not saying I've ever done that or anything. At least not recently. (laughs) I will say that, I mean... uh, my favorite late night order isn't just, you know, getting like, you know, the just the the meal, the meal or whatever with fries. It's getting like a bacon and egg McMuffin, a junior <laughs> chicken, a double cheeseburger, <laughs> like three or four little things. That goes through the menu. Yeah. Th- those are fun. I could do those. 
You skip the pop and the fries? Yeah. Man. Well, if you skip the pop and the fries, you know, you're saving the calories on the fries. So you can get a couple of the more uh, satiating burgers. That's what I'm saying. It's not, it's not a bad idea. Well, uh, if you do so on McHappy Day, which is today, uh, then uh, you have the money go to the Ronald McDonald House. So it goes to a very good cause in many communities. Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. It's um, It's been a real interesting Having heard from a lot of people out of Abbotsford, Trent Call was on the morning show today with Halford and Bruff. Uh, there's a clip that's really doing the rounds right now. We'll have our take coming up after 5 o'clock. But really interesting situation with the Canucks goalies sat and what they do with the goaltending situation moving forward. Obviously, you have Thatcher Demko. You're expecting Spencer Martin to be the backup. And you still have a couple of good young goaltenders in the organization. Beyond that, they feel pretty good about, but need more development time. Let's bring in our next guest. He is uh, Kevin Woodley, In Goal Magazine, our goalie guru, covers the Canucks at NHL.com, and he joins us every Wednesday. Thanks for this, Kevin. Now we're just kind of wrapping up Abbotsford season. Now we're hearing from a lot of the uh, – players and the coaches and I want your take on uh on the goalies and how that whole situation played out obviously Spencer Martin was the star but beyond that you know a lot of expectation a lot of hope for Michael DiPietro and obviously Artur Silov's got the call up late in the year but didn't see any time uh, how have the Canucks worked with DiPietro and Silov's first of all I just want to see, hear you say DiPietro a couple more times <laughs> DiPietro I like it, I like it. I'm not even going to try. Don't encourage um, him, Kevin. <laughs> my apologies, Sat. My apologies. Um, yeah, I just, I, I mean, at the end of the day, Spencer Martin came in there and, and you know, was essentially a five to start the season. I, I don't know that he came there in there expecting to be a five, but that's essentially what he was. Um, and he gets full credit for doing the work and Curtis Sanford for, doing the work with him, but also recognizing the process he was going through and knowing when to push and when to back off and, and basically didn't play much at all at the beginning. And then when he did get a chance, the work paid off. Um, and so he moved up the depth chart. And what becomes interesting, you know, maybe looking forward more so than looking back is, um, you know, if he's the guy up here next year, and you've got the other two still in DiPietro and Silovs in, in the minors. My sense is that they really want to make sure that Archer Silovs plays. And I'm not sure that there's enough confidence at this point in Michael DiPietro at the National Hockey League level that he is an insurance policy they're willing to bet on. In which case, you need to have a little more experience in that three slash four hole. And the question would be, who's it with? Because I think, obviously, we know that Ian Clark is very big on Artur Silovs. Um, he has driven the bus on this guy since they drafted him. So they don't want another year for him like this past year where he wasted away and then ended up going to the ECHL, which is kind of what they did to Michael DiPietro two years ago. Yeah. Not, not even as bad as what they did to him, but similar. That's not going to happen again. 
And so if you do, if they do lack that confidence in Di Pietro's ability to play up and look around the league, guys, 119 goalies in the NHL this season, look what's happening in the playoffs, you need more than two. So if they feel they need help in the three spot and Artur Silovs is your four, what does that say about where Michael DiPietro fits? And that's, that's what I, that's sort of how I, that's from the outside looking in. Um, I believe in Michael DiPietro and I believe he's capable of, of being that guy. Um, but the more you sort of hear from people around the organization and not even the goalie department, the more you sort of get this, this sense that they might might not believe um, as much as I do. And if that's the case, and if they do, essentially this is going to come down to free agency and Mm -hmm. what they do will tell you what they think. And if it's to add experience in that three hole, I can tell you right now, I, I don't think the preference is for Artur Silov to start start next year or spend time next year in the ECHL. So um, make of that what you will. And that's kind of why I said when we were on last week, and I know a bunch of people reacted to it, like, you know, there was some uncertainty to me about where Michael mm-hmm. DiPietro's future is with this organization. Doesn't mean I don't believe in him, um, but I might believe in him a little more than than some people within this organization do right now. Well, and the incredible thing is, even though he turned pro in 2019, he hasn't even played 75 games in the minors. I mean, at, and in that the first AHL. pro season sat. Yeah. Like, how good was that for a first year pro? Like mm-hmm. that. Like to me, that showed a lot of potential, and and I'm not ready to write off that potential. Well, and, and and I think that's the interesting part about it, and we'll see where the team's at. Now, if they if they if they don't believe in him the way, say, you do, is there a market for him? Like, is he the type of player that you can actually move and get something for and you know, or or make a swap with a prospect from a different team that can give you something? Or is this something like, hey, we'll bring a veteran in and if Mikey doesn't play well enough, he's the one who finds himself in the ECHL. Like what type of scenario do you think we might be looking at? Well, it may be the latter just because I don't know. And, and, and you hope that there's a real chance to, because to me, every time anybody doubts this kid, he proves them wrong, right? So um, he's certainly capable of it to the point where I wouldn't even count, count out him pushing for opportunities at the highest level. Um, there was a step back this year, no question, compared to the year before. Uh, as much as the year before was kind of a wasted season, you watched him, you know, you watched him in practice, you watched him moving. Um, it just seemed like everything was coming together off of that pro season. But I guess, like I said, at the time, you know, you can't replace experience and what they did to him two seasons ago bordered on criminal, but you got to move past that. Um, and, and, and I'm not sure they're convinced he did at least early on this season. So um, in terms of market though, like that, you said it like 75 games and as impressive as the first season was there, there just hasn't been anything since there's nothing to really hang your hat on. And with the market for goaltending depressed as is, um, and a six footer in the third round, like I, I don't, I don't know that there's a ton of value there. I don't know that there's a lot of teams lining up to take that shot. Now, all it takes is one, and I know there are other people in the goalie world that believe in in what Michael DiPietro um, can do at the pro level, and I and I say that, you know, like not just like. I, I just think there are things in his game that a lot of people that a lot of people still like. All it takes is one, but I still don't think that it's like you're not getting big returns for this. Maybe if it's part of a package, you know, who knows? I'm speculating at this point. I my sense though around the league is there's not a lineup, and it's not an asset that has a ton of value at this point. 
What makes Artur Silov such an exciting prospect? Kind of just because he checks a lot of the boxes. Um, you know, when we had Ian on the podcast, like I guess it's it's an over a year ago, he went through sort of, you know, the, the seven keys to elite goaltending, and he broke them down. And if you watch Silov, like he, he checks a lot of those boxes, and he also has a really good work ethic, and he adapts quickly, and he adapts well. Now, can he process the game at the National Hockey League level? Um, you know, I think you need to see more. You need to see more opportunities in the American League level, right? Like, the reality is, he, not, he much like Di Pietro, he hasn't got that opportunity, right? And so, and that's where the this is where this becomes a tough decision for the organization next year, um, because both of these guys, you know, we're talking about opportunities and the need to play, and and you need to get touches and reps at the pro level in order to move up. So, you know, as, as Mitch Korn once said, it's a game of, uh, you know, uh, goaltending is not a, a game of shots. Uh, it's a game of patterns. And pattern recognition is a big part of development, playing, playing and recognizing, seeing things happen more than once so that you recognize the third time you know, you know exactly where that's going to go based on hand position, stick position, tendencies, all those kind of things. Like those just take time. And if you do go out and feel the need because you, you need the support for the National Hockey League team, and again, we've seen it, everyone's going three and four deep, you need to have that insurance policy. It, it just can't be at the expense of playing time for one or both of these guys. It just can't happen again. And so in an ideal word, world, you find a veteran. I think they had it, you know, a Richard Bachman type. Um, like what they had when Thatcher Demko was down there, a guy who can still give you good minutes is experienced enough and, and capable enough that if you need him to come up and, and sit on the bench for a couple of weeks and maybe play once or even twice, he could do that and not hurt you in the NHL, but he doesn't require, like he's not an up and comer himself. He doesn't require X number of minutes in the American Hockey League. He can be more of a mentor as opposed to a guy who takes minutes away from mm-hmm. one of the young guys. And so that list shortens a little bit in terms of the types of guys that, that fit that bill. Um, but that's, that's kind of what you're looking at. Cause you just, you just can't continue to have these prospects essentially rotting, uh, the way Di Pietro did two years ago. And yeah, that was a pandemic, but, um, you know, this was a, nor- this was a more normal season. And you could make the argument the same thing happened to Artur Silov this year to a lesser degree that happened to Michael DiPietro two years ago, and that's just no good for their development. Silovs has 21 appearances in the AHL and ECHL combined the past two years. So that's not great as far as development goes and getting enough reps. Now, Not at all. No. And the other big story, and it wasn't really Canuck related, but of course people tied it to the Canucks, Barry Trotz being let go by the Islanders and people asking the question, should this be a coach the Canucks should be pursuing? And I think the biggest question around Barry Trotz is what does Barry Trotz want to do? And then the second part of the question too comes with Mitch Korn. People thought well, if, if the Canucks hire Barry Trotz, does that mean he has to hire Mitch Korn as well? Because they always come as a duo. What do you think of the whole Barry Trotz situation and j- just the thought of Mitch Korn and him being a tandem? Well, I mean, they have been throughout their career, so I understand where that sentiment comes from. But here's the thing. I don't expect Barry Trotz to coach next year. I don't expect him, at least at the start of the season, to be behind an NHL bench. Now, somebody may make an offer that blows him out of the water and and, and maybe he gets the itch, you know, quickly this summer to get back at it. But if you look at his career, like there hasn't been a break in it. 
Like when he goes to Washington, there was a lot of work to be done to make changes. Same thing when he went to the island. Um, like there just hasn't been a break. And in talking to people who are quite close to him um, and, and, and having built some relationships with people that are through, through his work with various goalie coaches through, through those organizations, the sense is that there's going to be no rush, that you may see him sit back and collect that, I think uh, whatever the Islanders owe him for next year, I think it's $4 million and just, you know, take a break, a much needed and a much deserved break as opposed to jumping back in. So as much as we hear it here in Vancouver a little bit with, with the uncertainty around Boudreaux, we certainly, you're hearing it in markets like Philadelphia and Winnipeg, you know, to an even greater extent about the concept of bringing him in Detroit, who also fired their goalie coach. Um, so they're looking and, and talking about the idea of a package. Seattle, I've seen a lot of talk out of Seattle about Mitch Korn going there as a goalie coach, um, you know, regardless of Barry Trot's status. At the end of the day, if Barry's not coaching, then there's no sort of Mitch has got to go with him type of situation in the first place. Um, I do think the Islanders want him back. I saw a report that that Mitch was already, you know, was leaning towards not returning to, to, to New York. Um, can't remember which of the, which of the reporters out of the New York area had that. It's not what I'm hearing. Uh, I think that door is still open depending on what, what coach is hired to replace Barry. Um, you know, if Elaine Lambert were, were to be a successor, like they're all tied together as closely as Barry is to, to Mitch almost because they've all, all been in it together. And there's Mitch is a guy with a lot of loyalty, right? Like it wasn't easy to leave Washington to go to New York. Um, he had built a foundation, hired the goalie coaches, not just at the NHL level, but the American league level and set a really nice program in place. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see Barry Trot sit out despite all the attention uh, surrounding his availability. And in terms of Mitch Korn, like, you know, for a lot of these teams that are talking about, Oh, we should get him as a goalie coach. If he is available, um, my first hunch would be he returns to New York. And if that doesn't happen, uh, people need to understand like that. He hasn't been full time for a while. Uh, he's been part time in a goalie director role. I don't believe there's any interest in getting back on the ice and being a day to day goaltending coach. Uh, if he's looking for another opportunity, it will be in a similar vein, which, you know, not a lot of organizations, frankly, uh, have that job in place as a director of goaltending, um, spends half his time each month, you know, at his his sort of off season, I guess in season, you know, for two weeks every month, home uh, in in Florida. So, like the people in Seattle that have that on their wish list, like forget about it. That's <laughs> outside of Vancouver. There's not a longer commute. So I, I I understand the speculation. I understand how intrinsically tied to each other they are. And yet my understanding of the situation is that that's not necessarily how this is going to play out. Now, everything could change if, you know, Barry gets an offer he finds very difficult to refuse or the itch comes back much sooner than he expects. Um, But my hunch right now is that you see him not behind the bench, at least to start the season. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if you see Mitch stay in that that director's role in New York uh, and continue to work with the elements that he's already put in place that rather than going somewhere else and starting from scratch. And I will guarantee you what you don't see is Mitch Korn take a actual goalie coaching job, uh, you know, in the near future here. It'll be a director's role if anyone's willing to offer it. Kevin Woodley, our guest. The uh, quote I can't get out of my head from Connor McDavid last night is, uh, we scored four goals, that should be enough to win. 
Now, I don't think he's putting it all on his goalie because defensively they were a bit shambles last night as they often have been this year, the Oilers. But is Mike Smith costing the Oilers this series? Yeah, it's a tough one. Like, if I were to tell you that, uh, let's put it this way, um, there is only one goalie in this series who's above expected, both in terms of save percentage and obviously goals. And it's not Jonathan Quick. It's Mike Smith. Now, Jonathan Quick's numbers have been hurt by the blowout losses, but like Mike Smith has still got his head above water right now. The problem is, like even last night, um, it wasn't that bad. Like, like they gave up to the LA Kings, who do not generate offense, worth a lick. They gave up 4.84 expected goals, and obviously the Kings scored five. So like Mike, Mike wasn't bad relative to what they created. It wasn't terrible. The problem is the types of goals. Um, I mean, they gave up 11 high-danger chances to the Kings, and, and, but the Kings only converted two of them. It was the, and the one low-danger chance. It's, you know, it's not controlling the rebound on the first one and then grabbing onto the guy's stick as he tries to knock in that rebound and not recovering properly or not recovering quickly enough for the Troy Stetcher shot. I mean, with all due respect to Troy from Richmond, and we all love him here, like, he is not a guy who should beat you clean from the mm, top of the circle. Yeah. Like, that's just, we saw that here for a long time, right? And so, so Mike's a little late getting set. But then if you rewind that play, like, he's slow to recover and get back up and get square and get set, and he never really does. But the other part of that play that nobody talks about it, because it's easy to criticize him, is both Oilers go out towards Troy Stetcher, two Oilers in the lane, neither one of them, in the right side of the lane. They're not in the proper side. They're the same as a lot of teams, and I've checked on this. It's defenseman in the short side, goaltender, or defenseman in the middle lane. Goaltender looks short side around a screen. Mike looks short side around his own players screening him, and of the two guys that aren't even in the right freaking lane, neither guy gets in front of the puck. And so there's a lot of both here. Like, he's giving up goals that hurt you, low percentage goals. We've talked about it in the, fa- in the past. Um, your team, as much as he's above water overall, you know, in games where you give up a low percentage goal, your team loses 87% of the time unless the other goalie reciprocates, right? And so there's been too much of that, and yet he's not alone in this. You can't give up almost five expected goals to the Los Angeles freaking Kings. Like, you just can't. And it's commitment defensively. It's mistakes defensively. Like, they look like a deer in headlights through the early parts in that game. So, um He's not helping them as much as you'd like him to, but he's not the only reason they're down in this series. Once again, I mean, for the most part in this series, they've been really good defensively. But last night was just was just a lot of things compounding, and he's part of it, but it's not on him alone at this point. Uh, now, before we let you go, Kevin, uh, we do have to ask you about uh, the game and also the goalie duel we're seeing between the Leafs and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Is Jack Campbell actually outplaying Andre Vasilevsky? Is that a take that's actually correct in this situation? And I know uh, you want to share a thought or two on that game-winning goal, the pass off the pads by Mitch Marner. Uh, yeah, so a couple Matthews. things. Yeah. yeah, a couple things there. We'll start with, like, is Jack Campbell outplaying Andre Vasilevsky? I guess he is. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, because Andre Vasilevsky's out of 26 goalies that have been in the playoffs so far, Vasilevsky's 21st in terms of adjusted save percentage. He is underperforming his environment um, in a way that we haven't seen from him. Now, that said, there's been one thing about his playoff runs 
he's always been his most gettable in the first in the first round. Um, we saw them lose in the first round three years ago. Uh, he got better as the playoffs went on two years ago, but didn't have a great start, if you remember. And then last year, frankly, if Florida doesn't, and I don't know why in the world they thought this was a good idea, but they tried to turn it into a street fight and they turned it into a power play contest. I still think Florida knocks off Tampa Bay in the first round last year if they play at five on five, and all the numbers mm-hmm. indicate that. Yeah. But they they turned it into a power play contest, and that allowed Vasilevsky to get his legs, and he got better as the playoffs went on. I don't know if he's going to get a chance this year. Um, so that said, yeah, Campbell's better than him, but Jack Campbell's below expected as well. Like, he's not playing exceptionally. Neither guy is. He's just the less bad of the two right now, frankly, not great goaltenders in a series that, you know, to their credit, like there's a lot of offense here and some pretty low expected save percentages. Um, and, and to go lastly, I wanted, did want to talk about that pass off pads. Cause a lot of people are going to be like, like what a great play. And like this, you know, like there's a lot of coaches that be like, see, pass off pads, pass off pads. And Hey, it's, it's not, it's not a bad idea. I, I wouldn't, there's opportunities and there's times when you'd like to see more of it. But you got to really break down the way Marner executed on it yes. to understand why it worked. Like he so watch his stick blade, watch his the way he sets up for that shot. Everything he shows Vasilevsky is high glove, right? And I saw um, oh, it's his hockey on Twitter's uh, uh, Jan Hockey um, Jack Hahn. Yeah. yeah, Jack Hahn did it, and he was bang on. Like, watch how Marner shows high glove. So Vasilevsky's got the weight on the right pad, and that means, like, there's no – he can't be as reactive with that right pad because he's got it slightly loaded to push up high into a high glove shot, and all he's got is a pure block. Like, if he's playing that straight-up neutral and not anticipating something, there's a good chance he either kicks it out more actively or he actually gets a stick on it and steers it up off the ice so that it's into the corner and not such an easy putback for Austin Matthews. So it's, it's not just as simple as get over the line, come down the wing and throw it off that pad because 90% of goaltenders, especially at that level and, and as good as Vasilevsky um, are getting a stick on that low shot and steering it out of play or into the corner into a less dangerous situation. It's about the way Marner sold that um, and, and forced him to sort of uh, play it honestly or almost cheat a little bit towards what Marner was showing. So it's two dynamic skilled players executing a pass off pad, not just down the wing, throw it off there and collect the garbage on the backside. You need to do more than that to score on these guys. And what a great job Marner did selling that. Woodley, uh, always love it. Thanks for this. My pleasure guys. There is Kevin Woodley, the goalie guru telling us all we need to know here on Canuck central.